we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands and waters where we're recording from, the Waramai and Wanarua peoples. We acknowledge the Waramai and Wanarua elders, both past and present. All right, here we go. Who is on the field for the Newcastle Knights? Darren Tracy's first touch of the footy. Now Andrew John. Fights a little hole himself. He's close. He reaches out. That's a title, Andrew John. Bruce Street from the little halfback, and that's a good reward for a great game. It is debut match for the Newcastle Knights in first grade. Andrew Johns scores the try, and that should wrap it up for the night. Coming to you live from Warramai and Wanarua lands, this is the Bay 53 podcast, part of the sport's best friends podcasting network, still brought to you by A-plus contracting and polywelding. Finally, beautifully and wonderfully, the Newcastle Knights NRL season is over, and we can kiss this season goodbye and all move on with our lives. But before we do that, we still have one last NRL game to talk about and then determine just where it all went wrong. Fortunately, though, the women continue to do us proud, and as the men shake off their mad Monday shenanigans, the women are gearing up for an historic first finals campaign with three wins from three. So as we review the weekend's play and look to the future, we've brought along good friend of the pod and avid Knights fan Ben Darwin to review the club top to bottom. Bretto, we made it. We made it to the end of the season in one piece. And I've got to be honest, I was not sure that we were going to make it. I'm not sure we're in one piece, mate. I think I'm in about 15 pieces. Um, yeah, I'm so glad it's over. Ben, oh, look, we'll bring you straight in on it, mate. As a Knights fan, particularly for the NRL, are you? What, what's your feeling after 25 rounds? Is it relief? Is it embarrassment? Is it embarrassment? Where, where are you, where are you um, after the season that the men have just had? I'm never embarrassed. Um, of the team, never embarrassed for the players, um, but it's the team continues to find itself in a position where it's behind the eight ball to win games, and that's that hasn't really fundamentally changed. And so uh, there's some work to do to hopefully turn the Knights around uh, at some point in the near future because I think it's uh, you know I actually starting to think about the Knights almost becoming like the Boston Red Sox, sort of like the the team the team in blue and red that sits above the main city and, you know, continuously wants to challenge them, but somehow, somehow does, finds a way not to. So it's almost getting that a, is, little, a little bit cursed. That, that is so funny. You say, I, I have often thought about ourselves as the uh, the Boston Red Sox to the Sydney Roosters, New York Yankees, in that no matter what happens, no matter what we do, we just cannot get it over, get one over the, um, the big brother rival. Uh, notwithstanding the fact that we're going to uh, continue to push through, Brett, I'll, um, I'll I'll chuck to you, mate, because you. I mean, let's just get straight into it, as as we like to do. Let's uh, let's get the men's get the men's stuff out of the way. You and I were there yesterday. Miserable conditions. Uh, I think the final score. I'm really bad at doing this because I'm never. Was it was it 30, 38 to sixteen in the end? Was that the yeah, final score? Right. That'll do. That'll do. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, that's that's more than enough. That's when I think that's when I switched off. Um, solid first half, shit our second half. In a lot of ways, it was a game that encapsulated the men's season as a whole. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, mate. We um, Yeah, we really slogged it out into the win of that first half because that Southerly was, was an absolute gale and anyone that's been to McDonald Jones knows that it's open at the end so when the wind's blowing, it's really tough conditions. But no, we, we went really well into the wind and I don't know whether that took it out of us or we sort of thought the wind would do, do the goods for us in the second half, but geez, we came out slow after half time. Ben, did you get a chance to see the game? It was Father's Day. Did you watch much of the night yesterday? I am very lucky that I have a job where I get to say to my wife, "Sorry, darling, I've got to go to work." Rugby league. <laughs> Kids, get out of here. Turn off Paw Patrol. Dad's got to watch the NRL. So, um, no, I did watch the game, and I think like this notion of the team falling away because because there's this you know we're talking about before there's level of chaos with the team. Once you once fatigue starts to set in, you you're trying to remember stuff you learnt this week. Yeah, and, and what tends to happen is, and you've you've seen it definitely the last three weeks, where you've got massive differentials in understanding between the top teams and the bottom teams. Is the bottom teams look like they stop trying? And one of the things that's really heartbreaking about what we would call low cohesion teams is people start saying things like, "There's no pride in the jersey. They don't want it enough." You know, some of the stuff going around about West yesterday. Whereas when you look at the numbers, you know, like. Like 50 points was normal for that type of outcome, as in, as in being put on them. 40, 50 points is what should have happened. Um, and so they're just, it's, this is just an ugly part of the back end of the year. And particularly if you don't grow through the season, the really good teams will start to stretch ahead of you. And if you keep trying to change to fix the problem as the season goes, you actually fall further and further behind. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's become a bit of a, a scenario for the Knights the last couple of years. And as the season's gone on, they've actually fallen back. Well, yeah, that, you, you're, you're spot on. I mean, if, even if the average punter can tell you from just uh, table to table, we've gone from two consecutive seventh place finishes. Uh, we're going to finish the men's season in 14th position this year. Um Solid first half performance. We couldn't keep up with the, the the second best team in the comp in the second half. Ben, lay it out for where where has it all gone wrong for the Newcastle Knights? Has it gone wrong? How how have the Knights found themselves in the position that they're in in, in after twenty five rounds of uh, NRL rugby league? So I think I think the the thing to point out here is, and those who haven't previously listened, what we what we do as an analytics company is we try to get to the heart of the strengths and weaknesses of teams and the way in which we would describe teams is um, uh, any, any team is a set of understanding between between the players, set of system understanding, role understanding, you know, where you sit in the, the defensive edge, you know, how much of your guys played together on those edges, things like that. So all those components are measurable and the Knights are at a point of measurement where they are behind the eight ball of most of the comp. They're not behind say, the Titans, they're not behind Wests, but they're a long way behind teams like the Roosters, um, uh, uh, Souths, um, uh, Penrith, of course, um, because you've got, you know, within Penrith, you've got this context of a ridiculous amount of understanding between guys since they've been together, you know, through their juniors. So one of the challenges you've got is the expectations when the, when the season begins. And, um, you know, generally the Knights don't, in most off seasons, don't have a lot of representative players, 
Uh, so they generally get more time together. Uh, we certainly found that during the last World Cup, mm. uh, leading into 2018, as the Knights and West started on fire because they didn't have any players in the World Cup, whereas you know Storm was getting guys back two weeks to go. As the season's gone on, the Knights have not underperformed, given those measures, by any sort of imagination. I'd probably say they were about probably won one more game than we thought they would. But the problem is, is that the numbers haven't gotten better as the season has gone on because one of the problems is every time you lose, you think, okay, well, we've got to change this. We've got to find a way to fix the problem. And every time you change to try to fix the problem, understanding doesn't necessarily grow between the players because you're changing something. You're putting another guy next to another guy. You're changing how you defend. You're mixing up the different edges. I mean, one number, for example, is Kalen Ponga in his 88 games has played in 35 different spines. Wow. Wow, geez. Um, Now, that spine has changed 45 times out of the 88 times. Now, it took Cameron Smith 14 years to get to that number. Right. So, um, sorry, just to be depressing. Um, But, but so, so the Knights were overtaken by some clubs like the Cowboys. The Cowboys were much more stable as the season went on. You know, they weren't, Cowboys weren't a red hot team at the start of the year. Um, Let me just have a look at them. So, um, they lost to the Bulldogs 6 4 in round one. Mm. Yeah, they were top two for the spoon after that. Yeah. Um, they they did okay. They got they got a Broncos who I think everybody overrated this year. Broncos are not a good team by our numbers. Um, actually, Ben, can I just quickly yeah. put? You called it two weeks ago. You actually said they've had a soft draw and they could. And I can still see them missing the finals. And you were bang on. They were they were they were seventy one to one four weeks ago. Missed the eight. Um, now they're one to one. But but that was like and and of those last six weeks they only underperformed in one game, which was that West game in Brisbane. The rest of the games, they were soundly beaten. And the interesting thing with Brisbane is when they play against a good spine, I think they've played a good spine six or seven times this year. I think the average points against them is like forty points, fifty points. So they just don't deal well with a good opposition. They'll just take them to school. Whereas they're good young team, they just and part of the issue for them and I'll. I've talked about this quite a bit, is their feeders. Their feeders are not built so the guys aren't coming through the system together. Um, so that's something to, that's something for someone else to figure out. But, um, yeah, that was uh, – it's it's this scenario where teams collapse. They're not actually collapsing a lot of the time. It's just the draw catching up with them or it's – you know, there's no teams this year that underperformed by any stretch of the imagination. Everyone's like plus one, minus one. There's not – there isn't any kind of uh, – you know, the Cowboys 2016 had some pretty big underperformance, I think 15 or 16, but other than that, hasn't really been anything since then that where teams are performing poorly. And that's the hard part is when you're in the team that's doing so badly and when you're trying to coach a team that's doing so badly is it's just destroying. You see James Tamu sitting there yesterday. It's like, man, maybe I should have stayed at the Cowboys. You know, it, was a, it was an easy Maybe time. you should have stayed suspended for the last game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, hey, uh, Ben. I feel sorry for I want it. I want to – I don't know if you can answer this or I don't know if it's sort of – if this is a false equivalency, but something that I, I really want to ask you is that because you're – last time you, we had you on, you were very big on this idea of cohesion. It, it's about building combinations. It's about building uh, a recognition, you know, comfort with the, with who you're playing alongside. Uh, look, I, I want to use a really poor example, but to sort of try to – 
try to get you to explain why why this cohesion is important, um, sometimes despite individuals. Inari Tuala has played a lot of games for us in the centres, and, it, and it's clearly not working. He, he's just a, you know, we, we're of the opinion he's better on the wing, but we've persisted with him in the in the centres, and you sort of hope that the idea is that is that you know he'll get comfortable with the men that's playing around him, he'll get better over time, and he'll, he'll grow into that role. And yet, in two games, we had Christian Mapapalangi uh, essentially, in a lot of ways, not outperform, but certainly show that he's he's ready for that position more so. And I, I guess what I'm sort of saying is, is, when you see things like that, can you understand when the the average punter such as us is looking at it, going? We've given Anari three years, and it's just not working. Sometimes you have to change, and and we've brought in this Mapapalangi, who was unlucky not to play in the last round because he wanted to play in finals with Jersey Fleet. Can you see where I'm sort of coming? You know, when you talk about cohesion, are you sometimes trying to fit the wrong players to work alongside one another? So, so first things first is if if you try if you try the same person in the same spot all the time, but you change everybody around them, then it's extremely hard for that person to perform well. So if like, you know, the Knights edges have generally been pretty unstable over a period of time. The thing with stability is what it then allows you to do is to figure out whether somebody can play or not. If everything's unstable all the time, then it's extremely difficult. Now, part of the challenge is going to be also is, um, what position has that person played before? What are they going to have to unlearn versus learn? Whereas if you bring a kid in who's never done anything else, you can actually just say, I just need you to do this and they can do that job. Now, in in the context of, of these different players, and I haven't watched them enough individually, I apologise, is they might do extremely well on attack, but they might be a complete liability in terms of defence, but not because they're missing tackles, but maybe they shoot out of the line too hard. If you look at Reynolds yep. in the last round, you know, he was shooting out of the line. And the problem was that I remember particularly about uh, 10 years ago, um, Kurt Gidley was the only senior player on the team, was shooting out of the line so hard, they would step him and then go back into the hole he came from. But it wasn't Kurt Gidley's problem. The problem is no one was going with him. Um, you know, like no one knew to, no one knew that it was time to go and time to push hard defensively. So it just ends up with this really senior guy looking, you know, ridiculous. Um, it's it's such a case with Newcastle is that in that no, is in that notion of chaos. It's yes, we've given somebody three years, but let's look at the conditions under which that's taken. So there's a term attribution bias, which is this player is crap because he's not performing well. But let's actually look at that. So let's you know let's look at that scenario of Kalen Ponga. Okay, so how long did the Knights give him at five eight? Three games. Three weeks. Okay. Well, that doesn't work. Let's now change it. And then move everyone else around to try to accommodate Kalen to get that, you know, and he wants to do that. That's fine. Let's do that. Okay. But then let's chop, you know, the chopping and changing of that's fine. That's taken place. Now, one of the things too is that happens is in an unstable environment, if you're spending all of your time adjusting to new teammates, no one gets better. No kids get better. So young players in an unstable team do not improve at the same speed that they would at, say, the Storm or Penrith. So the question would be, 
is the club, is the Knights actually providing a learning environment for that player to be a part of to, um, you know, to improve? Or is he just feeling, God damn it, I'm on, I'm in another edge. I've got another edge I've got to try to figure out how to play well with. And this guy does things differently again. And all you end up is just massively high levels of ambiguity. So does that, does that sort of make some sense at all? Like yes, the, there's an overall chaos, and if that chaos does not allow skill acquisition because of constant adjustment, then no one gets better. And so what will happen is kids get lost in that system. That kind of um, puts some light on a big issue for Knights fans, which is Bradman Best. Now, he was considered by everybody in rugby league as a slam dunk, can't miss NRL player. And he came into first grade and looked that, but the last 18 months through injury and stuff, he's, you know, he's really regressed to the point where there's rumours the club is trying to shop him because he just can't he can't get in the team next year. And when you sort of think in that context, well, pretty much I'd say at least 75% of his games has either had a, a different man on his inside on the edge or he's had a different winger outside him. So what you're saying there is that's a real reason why Bradman won't develop because he's got no stability around him. Yeah, and... and- you know, we've, you've, you've had, you know, the biggest problem for the Knights is the titles and the Johns brothers. You know, not not in a bad way. God bless them. They should be knighted, you know, and, and, um, and uh, you know. Statue guys working on a statue, mate. Yeah, religious deity. But but the problem is you had two brothers who'd grown up together. You can't, you can't beat brothers for understanding. You just can't. Um, you so know, should the knights be should the knights be looking at the Trebojevic boys and bringing them on board? I'm sort of joking <laughs> when I ask that, but that is part of me that goes. There's a certain amount of luck that they were from Cessnock; they'd grown up together. But what you do is you want to you want to create brothers. Penrith doesn't have brothers, but it's got brothers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, Luai and Cleary are brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. They're they're brothers by proxy because of how much time they spent together. So, um, and then and then part of the problem is the knights won titles through a very unstable time in the league when you didn't have to be a great defensive power as you do now because the league's league's actually more stable now than it was back then by quite some distance. So you have to be better now to win the comp. Um, and not to say those those that, those Knights 97 and 01 teams were magnificent. They were very, very well built. But, but you've actually got to go beyond that now to win it, which means you've got to build across seasons together it's not two or three seasons now it's probably four or five seasons to be able to put a team together capable of of what would now basically be beating Penrith in Sydney um which so, is what you do to win it all the Roosters in Sydney so Ben I mean you look at the, the season the Knights have just had six wins you say that that's more than they should have had you look at the way that they sort of played like a 14th placed team against Cronulla in that second half you talk about as as well, you know, building those those um, connections over time. Mate, Mike, is it possible that the take from you is that the current squad that we've got at Newcastle now, like that, we can't we can't go anywhere with this squad. Do you know what I mean? Like, is is, is I'm, I, you know what I'm because you know what I mean? if it takes if it takes years of development, th- these players aren't going to be developing for for too much longer. So. I guess I'm sort of asking, like, is is the, is does the club need to blow up the players, or do they need to persist with them for the for another five or six years? So, so this is a this is a, a question we deal with with coaches all the time and different people in different environments. So, let's say you now gutted the knights, 
right? And said, right, let's just take a bunch of 21-year-olds <coughs> and threw them together. Well, the problem is, is that whatever you had to probably not come through the system anyway right now. Um, it hasn't. The pathway has been good but not, not as effective as perhaps it could be. Um, and you'd have a bunch of players who really are uncapped, don't have massive amounts of shared experience and have been brought in gradually. And so they would be annihilated, right? They'd be, be, be 60, 70-point losses. So then you've got some impatience. And we see this happen at clubs all the time. The coach comes in, I'm going to go with kids, goes to kids. You know, a little bit of Anthony Seabold, for example, at Brisbane, you know, started with a senior team, decided to go with junior guys, bring them through together. And then the board or the, the owners or whoever it might be or the public just don't have any patience for that. And then those guys leave because they feel like it's never going to get better. I think if you look at a really good example of who's probably done it best is Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. So he came into the club, this is in the 70s, came into the club and stabilised the club for the first time in 20, 25 years with what he'd had and then and almost lost his job, got within one game of losing. I think he had to win an FA Cup game and won that. And they're like, okay, well, you can keep your job, which seems crazy now, but they wanted to fire him. And then off the back of that, then started to drip feed the kids through into the system. So, so you've got to stabilise it enough to be able to defend well enough. But generally, if you then sit down with any club and it's like, well, we don't have any good players, we're going to go get some good players. And so they just go on this continuous cycle around and around and around of we don't have any good players, we're going to go get good players. Then you get those players in. They don't perform to the standard you expect. Um, so all they try to basically change everything about the way you're doing things or you do the same with the coach. Then they underperform, and then you're like, well, that didn't work. Let's get rid of that guy. Or we've paid overs for him. We're going to send him somewhere else. You know, you have all these issues with salary caps. And so um, the clubs can do this cycling for years and years. And I think that the difference is when people think about building a team, they think in terms of names. We think in terms of understanding. And so I think that would be the first thing is stabilise the club first enough to then try to foster the youth that's coming through the system and then allow them to come into a stable environment. Renato, I, I want to ask a question because I think I, I actually think I know where you might want to go with, with this. And I sort of, because we'll, we'll get onto the coach very shortly, Ben. We're going to talk a lot about Adam O'Brien tonight. But one of the criticisms that's comes Sorry, one of the criticisms that's come uh, O'Brien's way, certainly in the last six weeks, you know, the last couple of months, when it was apparent that we weren't going to do any damage this season, and we on this pod as well, one of our criticisms, what, what, what are you doing with the selections that you're making? Like, what are you trying to achieve with a season that's essentially over with the players that you're picking? You, you're picking players who aren't going to be here long term. We, we've got juniors who aren't getting a go. Is it the potential that the justification for not playing young people, the young players, is that you don't simply pick juniors simply because you've got nothing to play for? You want to make sure that you're bringing them into a team where they're going to have the best the best possible um, scenario or environment to perform at their best ability. And at the moment, it is the potential that the NRL, the Knights NRL first grade type team, is just not going to provide that environment. Well, the, the first thing we know is we don't know what's going on. We don't know the conversations that are being had in-house. And we don't know where the pressures are coming from on the coach, the decisions to be made. 
And there's a whole bunch of things that go take place at any club. So you might have somebody who's a recruiter who's placing pressure on them to, to play this player that I've recruited in the team. You might have somebody that's a sponsor of the club saying, I've given this guy a third-party deal for 700000 and you're putting him on the bench. If you do that, I'm not going to give you another third-party deal. Um, I mean, and this is the types of conversations we have all the time with clubs. So you, you don't want to have mixed agendas. You might have, we just want to win. I know what you're saying with youth development, but we just want to win four of the last five games because if we get win four of those last five, I can now go to another player in another club and say, come here because it looks like we're building something. So all of these are uh, different conversations, different forms of pressure, but the problem is they're all working against each other. And then you've got boards, you've got owners. I mean, this is not the this is not the Nathan Tinkler period of time with text messages, you know, at halftime. You know, don't go to your phone, don't get your phone out of your bag because it might get abusive. But it's but it's nuanced. <laughs> the pressure is nuanced. And for a coach, you know, and I've been in this position, you're thinking to yourself, God, you know, I'm done, I'm done here. Let's say, let's say it goes really badly. You've won two games. I'm done here. If I could get to six wins, I can defend myself in a uh, in a in a job in a job interview for the Roosters next year as an assistant coach. Like, and and the reason that's important is I would I would like to stop sleeping on the couch because my wife's angry at me all the time. So I'd like to sleep in my own bed, you know. Or you know, yeah. like you've got you've got home issues. You've got um, you know your wife saying I don't want to go back to North Queensland. Or I don't want to go back to Brisbane. You know, I want to I want to stay in, in Melbourne. I want to go back to you know I want to be be in Newcastle. So all of these pressures are creating this really really challenging situation, and all of the selections are being made for a logical set of reasons. But one of the challenges is you don't find combinations, you build combinations, and a lot of the time what teams are trying to do is okay this doesn't work, let's try to make find another thing and see if that works. Now the problem is your opposition's also changing as well. So if you play against, let's say, the Titans next week, you'll try a combination that is probably not very well built, but it'll look really, really good because the Titans themselves are in pure chaos. So then you'll go, okay, that works. Let's pick the same combination again the next week, and then the Roosters put 50 on you. And you're like, well, that doesn't work. Well, actually, it worked just as well the first game as it did the second. It was the strength of opposition that was the difference between the two outcomes. And this is the problem. You're in this movable feast all the time of quality of opposition changing. Generally, it's going up as the season goes on. The good teams are getting better and better and better. And you're trying to judge yourself against this, this kind of moving feast. And, and the other point I'll make on coaches is they all make promises they were never going to be able to keep in the interview, but it's the only way they can get the job. You never see anyone more confident than a coach as they've just been um, or more in control as a coach has just been signed by a club. Um, and and because the coach actually has very little control outside of after they've selected the team, you can see them getting angrier and angrier and angrier. And it, it was the difference. Between, uh, anger is the difference between um, uh, power and responsibility. Right now, O'Brien has all the responsibility and very little power to change it. So you just see the faces of the poor coaches just getting redder and redder and redder and exploding because there's fundamentally nothing he can do beyond a couple of changes once kickoffs happened. And, you know, your Tim Sheen's coaching West Tigers last Saturday. There's nothing you can do. Oh, here we go. 
<laughs> there's nothing you could do once it starts. The um, obviously, does, does, that, does any of that make sense? I apologize. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, much. with the Knights, there's a you know, documented history the last especially five years, but this year was one of the worst in terms of injuries like force changes. Kalen missing large chunks of this year. The the uh, the chaos in the hearts because of Jake Clifford's off field stuff that he's been going through. We lost Jaden Bailey, who's captain at Hooker, with a, with a um Achilles before the season started, so he didn't start playing until August. That sort of stuff, you know, is just part of professional contact sport. Is there a way to develop combinations that can step into the roles? So Penrith seemed to like Nathan Cleary gets injured, the next guy steps up, they're fine. Is that just something that happens over time, or is that a, a way to sort of develop and coach your team? I mean, what you want to do is you want to end up with two good decisions. I can either play Cleary and Luai, or I can play the combination that's been playing in reserve grade plus under 16s for the last five years. Yeah. They step up and they can earn more time together. I mean, if, if you think about all the combinations at some of the poorer clubs over the last five years, like all the games between players have been wasted. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Every, Let's say Clemmer leaves at the end of the year. Every game he's had with everybody at the club goes with him. Yeah. And so that just goes onto the ether. What you want to be doing is developing it so that you can make good decisions. But that takes time to, you know, you should, should go from, okay, we've got one good combination to we've actually got two or three combinations we could use here. Um, and I was looking at the um, – I was looking at the storm the other – I was looking at every – because I was doing that piece on the, on the, the spine – and just looking at like three years later, they would go back to a certain guy. I can't remember his name at fullback. I think Guy out sometimes would go back to fullback or five eighth. But he's already 11, 12 games in. Yeah. And he's already at 200 games for the for Melbourne Storm. So that's sort of like Joey Marnie with the Roosters. It's the same thing. Drops it at fullback, but he's already had, you know, a dozen games there and 200 games in first grade. Yeah, exactly. So, like, he knows all the systems. He knows everyone else's role. He knows what he has to do. He's seen that guy do it 500 times. I mean, we would say positional change is the least disruptive form of change after system change and people change. So if you just move a guy around, they're still gonna and they're still being part of the system for a long time. But yeah, to answer that question, um, you know, was it was it a I just want to confirm what it was. Can you just repeat it for me? I apologize. Yeah, so chase their tail with injuries. Yeah. Are they better off just to plug guys into holes that they're familiar with? Okay, so so one of the so this is an area of study we've been looking at a lot, and I apologise if I talked about it last time. There is a relationship between stress and soft tissue injury. There's also a relationship between change and stress. So we just we just haven't quite made the link between the three. But yeah. you would imagine a team in chaos is a difficult team to be a part of, and it's quite chaotic, and um, and it's stressful losing as well. And so it like becomes this sort of like we don't have any cohesion because we keep changing the team. And then because of that, we then get more injuries. Like if you think about the Melbourne Storm's injury count, pretty low. Yeah. Penrith's injury count's pretty low as well. Yeah. That's not unusual for teams built that way. Crusaders are the same. Um, uh, Perth Wildcats are the same. So there's something about really, really stable clubs and injuries. Like they get them. But it's really like, can, I, can, I just, can I just sort of jump off that off topic? Yeah. So I'm I'm a Liverpool fan, and we were renowned for the fact that we didn't get a lot of injuries. Jurgen Klopp had at our team running and playing and pressing harder than any team in Europe. This year, every single person that gets on the field gets injured. 
Is that just an anomaly? Yeah, I would I would say so, but also um, Liverpool have undergone a bit of change. But I I would I'm oh, sorry, I'm now thinking about all our data on EPL and I've got to jump in my head to that. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah, I mean you you do get runs of injuries, unquestionably, right? And you do get fatigue. But generally, I would say, you know, it's not like these guys are, you know, completely um like, you know, Billy Slater got injuries for a while, didn't he, towards the back end of his career? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you do get runs of it, but I would say if you looked at the amount of injuries across the Knights over the last 10 years, and the other thing we tend to find too is is that is that if at a club you tend to get guys, if guys have been together for a long period of time, you tend to get people developing the normative behaviours. Now, some normative behaviours, for example, West Coast Eagle is smoking crystal meth. I'm not saying that's good, <laughs> right? But, um, but, you know, and I don't say that uh, flippantly, but but um, generally those behaviours are pretty good. Yeah. You do tend to get at, at uh, teams in chaos more misbehaviour. Um, when Even when good players come to them, either out of, out of frustration or just kind of, you know, you just don't get you, – you, I remember when I joined the Brumbies, which was a very well-run club, I was told by the senior players, change or go. And I basically had three months to change um, to this, to what they wanted, to what they needed, otherwise I was out. You know, I you don't necessarily – like who would say that right now at the Knights? No, no one. Absolutely no one. There's no one to yeah, say No one. Because no. there's no one who'd been here long enough to be able to have the gravitas to be able to say it. Like if it's clamour. <laughs> Come on, mate. Really? Yeah. So, exactly. so, so then you get situations like we're getting. So, but this is all like, like this is all temporary, and in a, in a cycle where the team is at, it's all quite fixable. But it just needs to stop for a second and say, "Hang on a second. There's a pattern here. We're still in the same pattern we were in." 06, 07, what do we need to do to fix that? And and what you need is you need institutional memory. And I, I, I spoke at a club. Again, I apologise if I'm repeating myself. I was talking to an AFL club a couple of years ago and we presented and they said, this was really good. You should have been here a couple of years ago. And we said, we were, but none of you were in the room. You know, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just love the game. But more than that, I love the community. If you're a fan of Rugby League or the NRL, you'll love Big T's Tees. Unique, affordable and made for fans. Find a link to the online store in the show notes below. You'd look good in one of Big T's Tees. Unfortunately, the fans of Newcastle have much better memory of the club than um, than, than a lot of, you know, other than poor Danny, um, than probably some of the board do. <laughs> I want to ask you about the role of the fans, Ben. Do we play any part in the way the team performs? That genuine question. I mean, everyone talks about the atmosphere of the Newcastle Knights home games, McDonald Jones Stadium. You know, opposition teams love playing there because they love the atmosphere. Do we play a part? So they did a study on the EPL a couple of years ago, and one of the things they found was that for the for every home fan, for every ten thousand more home fans at a game, the referee was more biased towards the home team. So generally, the NRL is fifty six percent 
to the home team, but that includes Sydney v Sydney teams. I think if you started to go, say, Newcastle or Brisbane, sort of like, you know, distance, start to drive up towards, you know, 58, 60%. So, you know, uh, the, the, the influence on the players, but also the influence on the referees, and referees are human beings, um, uh, is, is definitely there. But one thing that fans also do is they also place massive amounts of pressure. If you look at the most unstable club in AFL over the last 100 years, it's probably been Collingwood and Richmond who have the biggest problems. Yeah. Right? Um, because there's this enormous pressure and weight of history to fix the problem as soon as humanly possible. And you've got a lot of people. And, you know, there was a, there was a presser the other day when Essendon sacked their coach. Like, why did you sack him? We're a big club. We should be winning. Therefore, we're not winning, so he's got to go. It's like there's no notion of logic to that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, mm. you know, just because we've won before doesn't mean you should continue to win in any way whatsoever. So um, that that fan thing is is interesting. Um, if you want to find a competition where the home team wins a lot, so French rugby, it's like home team wins like 78% of the time because in French, yes. rugby, French rugby, the referees can get bashed to the car park if they don't give the results. <laughs> Noted. Noted. So you're saying bring that back to the NRL? I'm, look, I'm I'm all for I'm all for violence if it means getting the uh, the appropriate result. Well, I think I think that what was interesting was when COVID hit, the home team advantage dissipated dramatically. Yeah. So that told you it wasn't. It's was really it's really interesting that a team like us that are noted for the their home crowd atmosphere that over the last five years we've won more away games than home games, and we made the finals in those COVID affected years when the bubbles were happening. So I wonder whether the pressure of the home crowd does actually have a negative impact on the Knights. Well, interestingly, yeah, we've like, actually, interestingly though, we found that the, that the teams in COVID who actually were in camp more than other teams did much better. So the Warriors did better. Melbourne, obviously. Melbourne Storm did brilliantly. Richmond in the AFL. So the Victorian teams had to go and be in Brisbane, whereas actually the teams who were like staying locally, like Gold Coast, who could go home to their own houses. Because I remember... Um, Who's the Cowboys coach now? I apologise. Todd Payton. Payton was actually saying, like, normally they just bugger off home as soon as training finishes. So here they stick around and keep going. Yeah. So it's actually that time together was actually just increasing. uh, And certainly the Knights... The Knights boys t- talked about how they, you know, they developed that bond sort of in um, in camp during COVID uh, towards the second half of last year. They were sort of, I mean, you, you wonder now how much sort of currency there was in that, but certainly they were hoping that they could feed off a lot of that uh, energy that they that they bought into towards the end of last year. Ben, I, I want to talk. I want to talk a little bit more about the fans because we are a demanding lot in Newcastle. We, we we're proud. We're passionate. We like to feel like we're part of the team. But sometimes being a part of that team, we sort of feel like we tend to have own take our own ownership of the team. Ben, fans want the coach gone. They want the players changed. How realistic? How unrealistic are we as a fan base when it comes to say when it comes to things like that? When it comes to say we, you know, do something. We're saying we're essentially saying to the board, do something. We we won six games this year. You told us you, we were going to be top four. We need to see you doing something to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Should should we be ignored? Should we be listened to? Is there is there anything in it in terms of the demands that fans place on the club? Well, who told you top four? That was crazy. <laughs> 
The club did. Okay. The club did. They they came out publicly after last year. Don't laugh. And <laughs> and they said we're we're aiming for top four in twenty twenty two. And we believed them. If if let me let me just have a look. Sorry. That's shaking you, hasn't it? The idea that they thought they were going to be top no, four. I've heard, this, I've heard this many no, times before. The Stedman heard it from the night specifically in this case. Um, okay, let me have a look. So what I'm doing is I'm going back and looking at, at – so let's pretend, let's pretend that each team is in a certain state at a certain point at the start of the year and then you grow from that. Does that make sense? So, yep. so at the first game, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. There was eight, eight, eight or eight or nine clubs that were ahead of the Knights. And of course, you know this is why the Storm have won twenty-one years in a row in round one because they're actually built pretty well at the beginning of the year. And of course, Penrith are brilliantly built. Some of those clubs are so far ahead they would never catch them over the context of the season. But, for example, the Cowboys the Cowboys were behind the Knights at the start of the year, right? They've overtaken them threefold in that time, in, in terms so, of our measurements. So the Cowboys are the interesting one because they got a new halfback and a new 5-8, so everyone thought, oh, they're rebuilding, but... That rebuilding actually happened in one season. Spines don't take as long to build understanding as defence does. Okay, righto. So spine is like imagine imagine um, you're a, a classical music fan. I take it. Um, I absolutely. Yeah. So imagine a four piece quartet. A four piece quartet can learn a piece of music in a couple of days, no problems. An orchestra takes weeks. Yeah. So because so you've got a small group, like a basketball team, can build understanding really fast. So you've got your spine trying to build particularly the the six seven one relationship so you look at like let's take a look at for example um what year did uh did um crop go to the roosters 2018 okay so let's have a quick look at that and of course they had the world cup too so he would have arrived pretty late in the scenario i take it yeah yeah mm. okay well, just reconnect into the internet, 2018. Okay, here we go. So I've got every game here since uh, 85 at the moment. The ones I love, the ones I love is the uh, the Super League World Club Challenge. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's some interesting stuff there. Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, so 20, no, 2018, is that right? 20, yeah. 2018. Yeah. So the Roosters, you know, in their first game against the Tigers, scored eight points. Um, second game, they put they put thirty on the Bulldogs, who were not in in a well way, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, against Newcastle, whose numbers were holy crap, uh, not good. Then the Warriors, <laughs> they put six, so they so they went six thirty thirty. Then played the Warriors. They were only scored six against the Warriors. Um, they scored twenty-eight against Cronulla, who were kind of rebuilding. But what you want to see, what you're looking for, is them being able fourteen against Souths. So they're not quite hitting their straps yet. Six against the Bulldogs again. So they're averaging like twelve points a game. Only eight against the Dragons. And this is a year they won the comp. So 
Yeah. They would generally be scoring a lot more than that. What you're looking for is they put 22 on Manly, who were reasonably well built at that point. So they're now starting to hit their straps. Uh, 38 against the Broncos. So it took them about 10 weeks, Broncos, bad example, um, 10 weeks to to really start to hit their um, uh, to hit their straps against good teams. So their, their spine yeah. wasn't ready at the start of the year to win. They would was it like 10, 12 points a game, but they got together enough that by round you know round 20, round 25, they were functioning well enough. It's very, very hard to do that with a defensive team because you've got to keep both edges stable. It's just got so many different component parts to it. Um, you've got to build understanding through the middle um, and then and then grow it out and then deal with lots of different situations. Could so, just a quick question there, Ben. So you sort of talk about the stability of the edges in your defence. Yes. So we have a tendency at the Knights. We've done it with Mitch Barnett, and I think Adam Elliott will do it next year, where one of our edge players rotates during a game and certainly from game to game from edge to middle forward is that a mistake i think it depends on what everyone else is doing and how stable the rest of the scenario is um if that's within penrith that's no problems because everyone knows their bit it's not a shock it's one component part that's stable within a functioning system if it's happening in chaos i wouldn't necessarily do it but what you've got is you've probably got somebody, and, and again, I don't know what's going on. I don't know why the decisions are being made, but I would hazard it a guess. You're trying to make up, make up for some weaknesses. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Essentially, our best edge defender is yes. also our best middle defender. Yeah, you don't want that. Yeah, and, and you want to be able to, um, you know, to rely on guys to be able to do um, – to, for everyone to be able to do their role. Once people start having to make up for other people, you have a massive problems no matter what sport you play. Um, so that becomes a big challenge. 2018, is that, that's actually a, a, always a funny season because for Knights fans, we just, yeah, we finished 11th. We, but um, that's that's a season that finished two competition points between first and eighth position. Um, ben, look, I, I guess just on the Knights... I mean, from a player perspective, and I, and I want to sort of wrap up the player perspective so that we really can deconstruct the coach. But where do the where does this team go next year? Because unfortunately, we finished fourteenth. The only way isn't actually up. Can can we? <coughs> are you allowed to sort of talk about what you think the ceiling is for this team in twenty twenty three? So I think the point I'm just trying to make on this year is the window for success for a team like the Knights was very thin because what you would basically have to do is to early on find the team you want to have play for you and absorb losses and then work through those losses and then hope that you could then not have any more injuries and then as that understanding builds, you could then start to catch up to a couple of teams and knock them off. Does that make sense? Yeah. And then you try to back end. This is this is me trying to trying to find a scenario under which you can win a grand final. So Cronulla did this in sixteen, I think it was for their first five, and they kept and they had so many injuries they kept playing the same players and then they just started winning games together. Whereas like that and they went from thirteenth to second for cohesion in that year. Knights mm. went fifteenth to fifteenth in that year. So they didn't go forward. So if you can get on a run and you can absorb some losses, you can jag it, but you've basically got to pray for no injuries and pray for other teams to maybe falter. 
you know, like uh, maybe a couple of salary cap breaches might work quite nicely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 2015 is an interesting season in that we started 4-0 and and finished last. The Cowboys started 0-4 and, and won the competition. Right. I'm, I'm going to look at it now for you. 2015, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah, we beat we beat them I think in round three and that yeah they either zero and four or one and three and we were definitely four and zero. This is Cowboys. Yeah, Cowboys. Yeah. Cowboys yeah. had a lot of come back though, didn't they? Is that fair to say? From no, the, the, not they had a lot to come back. They had a lot of guys that um, started had interrupted off season, so they were going to get better as they went along. Yeah. So they beat uh, they beat Manly um, in round one. Um, sorry, my computer's a bit slow. Um, You're right. They beat a so so the, if there if there's ever a team in the NRL, we just don't know which one's going to turn up. It's the Raiders. Like like you know they can have what they did with Wests, and then they can lose to the Titans. Yeah, you know, at home. Um, Absolutely. Uh, so so 2015, 2015. Yeah. Uh, my apologies. 15. I'm looking at 2018. I apologize. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I was say. yeah. That doesn't make sense. Okay. So um, not numbers, Knights numbers at the start of 2018 were really good. Like if yeah. that was a year, they could have launched. Uh, um, so they beat the Warriors, uh, then they beat the Cowboys. Um, they were they were, you know, a little bit what we might call top heavy. Um, beat Gold Coast, beat the Rith when the Rith weren't the Rith yet. Um, it's kind of funny sometimes. You can't imagine teams being bad when they're killing it. Yeah. Like, yeah. oh, we beat the, we beat Penrith by fifty. Jesus, how did that happen? Well, yeah, they sucked. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so we actually played them in round in the last round of the, in the Wooden Spoon playoff, and they flogged us <laughs> that year. Yeah. So in um, so the, either through injuries or whatever happened, the Knights went backwards as the year went on. Yeah. Um, and ended up. Let me have a look here uh, towards the back end of the season. Um, yeah, so they're, not, they're actually starting. It's quite rare to do. You generally start a year at a certain point at A, and then you get to A plus one, A plus two, and you'll improve by 40 50% over the season. And this went backwards 25% over the year. So that means everyone catches you and then goes past you. Um, and then actually they end up getting beaten by Penrith in like around 26 yeah. Yeah, yeah, the spoon, the spoon so, off. Happens, sometimes that's injuries. Sometimes that's a player has a bad game and they'll go, oh, well, okay, he's not the guy anymore, so we want to move on or we want to, you know, reload through youth because these guys aren't contracted anymore. I'm not saying these are bad decisions. I'm just saying these are decisions that ended up with a team weaker at the end of the season than the one that started. Well, that was that was the first year post-Bennett, and there was a lot of sort of the squad. They had no idea who, who would stay and who would go. So I yeah. think there was a lot of shuffling around. <laughs> Yeah, that 2015 team is such a weird one. You know, we were five and five after ten rounds. We were in sixth position, yes. and then we fell off a cliff. But I, but I think there's, um, a really, there's a really important point. Can I just make this quickly, if that's okay? You yeah. can actually have a team that is built well and built to win now, to build built to to win finals, but they can be completely unsustainable in terms of success. And every game you go further in that direction actually takes you further away from winning from winning grand finals on a continuous basis. Would would you put Manly in that category? Everyone everyone sort of thinks Manly are built poorly, and Manly have years where they they look outstanding, then they drop off a cliff the next year regularly. Now, 
Well, I think the difficult years were, was that Barrett just took it in a completely different direction. Yeah. Their TWI, as we call it, went from, you know, the best to the worst in four years or something. Yeah. So yeah. they fell off a cliff. So they've had to put it back together again, um, but do it quickly. And then they got, and then that didn't work. And then you end up with um, with uh, uh, Hasler coming back. But the club's just not built as it was back then. You didn't have that generational group with Watmo and those guys. Yeah. Um. I mean, the, the, the big difference with, with the Manly squad now is they don't, they don't have the Manly discount. A lot of those guys took massive unders to stay there, whereas now they've got four or five hugely paid players and a lot of guys that are barely first graders. The, the, the panic when DC went to the Titans. Yeah. Yeah. When his apartments like, yeah, you've got a job for life. It's like, it's like, um, it's like you're about, you've got a girlfriend that's not the right one for you and you break up with her and then she goes, okay, see you later. And you're like, oh, no, 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 please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll marry yeah. you. I'll marry yeah. you. It's like, oh, yeah. you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You, <laughs> I'm, I'm very happily married. Let's not make any comments about that. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so each, each club is in a different state. But my, my point is that, like, what's so scary about Penrith is they have the most cohesion, but they're still the second youngest team in the comp. Yeah, like I hate that. If, I hate if that. They could they could just stay there forever unless unless you know the league tries to take them apart or they destroy themselves. No, the, the hope, the hope is a lot of those players have sort of won their premierships and want the bit money so they move on. That's the only way that team's getting broken up. Yeah, but the, but if you keep that system of this they've got another generation coming through if they keep doing it. Oh yeah. Yeah, they, the yeah. thing is is to not is to not think of it like like Man United went for 15 years or whatever it was on the first or 20 years. It's multi-generational. If you can set up a team, Crusaders in Super Rugby, same thing. It's it's It continued to exist through multiple generations of players and continue to function. I mean, the Storm have still been relatively successful, even though their big four have gone. They've still been able to be pretty well constructed. I mean, Penrith is doing it better now, but the, the, it, unless somebody uh, really gets their act together, um, Penrith could just stay there for a really long time. Um, but what you actually want to do is you actually want to make the rest of the league as strong as Penrith is. Well, that's what that's how the AFL functions. Everyone, everyone is cohesive basically as a Melbourne Storm in the AFL. Yeah, yeah. I I, I remember reading an article a while back where that was about what the AFL goal was to drag the bottom up to the top, whereas the league's about dragging them the bottom the the top down and meeting in the middle. Yeah, it's it's uh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to stop Penrith being Penrith. You want to make everyone into Penrith. You want to make it, and and everyone's going to be different. I mean, Melbourne Storm have done it very differently. The Roosters have done it very differently, but they're all very well built and very well run. Um, and and one of the challenges with the salary cap, and the problem is, if you keep guys together a long time, they'll look really really good, and the market will start to overvalue them, and they'll start to buy those assets. At inflated prices, um, like what mode of Parramatta as an example, or yeah. you know, different. There's lots of different examples. That's not his fault. You take the money, but you don't want to have you don't want to have inflated assets getting acquired because the clubs that acquire those assets don't get the same value out of them. I imagine they will. A bit of a, a bit of a left field question. So a lot of people are bagging the Dolphins next year because they've essentially got a dad's army forward pack. But all those guys have played together at the Storm. Is that a smart approach? Yeah, so if you look at if you look at um, 
expansion franchises generally, you know, the Storm did it through, you know, a couple of guys who played. The Hunter Mariners. The Hunter Mariners. Well, I was going to say, but actually Knights Reserve grade. Yeah. Yeah. Right that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, everything begins and ends, as Steve Crow tells me, with Knights Reserve grade, 95, whatever. <laughs> um, so, so that was sort of Hunter Mariners, Western Reds, and then they brought some kids underneath. The, t- the Titans were an interesting example. The Titans was the first club in the NRL to begin with every single player coming from another club. In other words, they didn't have any kids. Like Newcastle probably had 10 guys who played other clubs and then another 10, 15 local guys, you know, who'd never played an NRL club. So generally you want to do it more that way. So that worked for the Titans for the first two to three years because once they built cohesion, they had a senior team. But then they were they kind of then fell away because they're all now too old and they kind of fell off a cliff. <coughs> so with the dolphins, there's a couple of things to them. One is how they use their feeder system, which would be really interesting, whether they maintain that dolphin scenario. And then and then secondly, it's really how you recruit after the first wave of contracted players. Yeah. Uh, and and how the how the I mean really the the storm went to the well of Brisbane North, didn't they? Those guys. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. That, that yeah. yeah. Um, if you look at, you know, I'm just trying to think about the other expansion franchises. Well, the Crushers was, you know, a train wreck when the Broncos started. The Broncos had so much out of Win and Manly and uh, I think Ipswich that they were basically good enough already to win games, um, and also from Queensland for Australia. And even even then, they took some time to sort of, you know, be the team we thought they'd be. Yeah, they didn't. They, they didn't uh, win the title until ninety two, ninety three, did they? Um, yeah, ninety two. Well, they didn't yeah. make. They didn't make finals. They didn't play finals until their third year. Yeah, that's right. Um, but they had enough to be competitive from the outset. Um, and then, uh, <coughs> my apologies. Um, uh, crushes, whatever. Um, t- uh, seagulls. The, one of the problems we actually have with our system is we don't know what to call the first incarnation of the seagulls of the of Gold Coast because it had four different names. Yeah, so, so they, were, they were the giants, the seagulls. Um, yeah, there were a few. They were the chargers. And they had another name for like three weeks. So right. I swear to God, we just call them the Gold Coast debacle. <laughs> <laughs> and then they moved to Newcastle. Ben, um, <laughs> Mate, can we talk about the coach? Because yeah, sure. everyone in Newcastle wants to talk about the coach. And yeah. I'm, I want to do a justice to, aside from your good self, probably one of the most intelligent people I know when it comes to talking about rugby. Sorry, brother, it's not you. You're, you're probably one of the most knowledgeable, most, most passionate, but no one listens to our pod for intelligence. But a good friend of ours um, uh, on Twitter, at Harvey G., he, he really wanted to make sure that I asked you this question because it's something that he just he can't get past. He can't he can't comprehend how a coach sorry how a club sticks with a coach that doesn't work. And he wants to know he really wants to wanted me to make sure that we understand. You're, when you were last on our show, you were of the opinion ninety percent of coaches that are sacked are are it's in, they were incorrect sackings. They, they shouldn't have been let go. But at what point do you reach a stage where the coach is just not doing the job? You know, you hear it all the time. The players aren't responding to him. He's lost the dressing room. You know, with Seabold, we heard that he complicated it too much. With, with O'Brien, we hear that he's, you know, he's he's got a temper. 
how long do you persevere with a coach that just for all intents and purposes doesn't know what they're doing? So, so first of all, um, there's a there's a there's a coach in Melbourne with a pretty reasonable temper on him, from what yeah, I can exactly. understand. That doesn't seem to be right. Yeah. yeah. So, so every coach has faults, right? Every coach has faults. In in losing situations where things are going awry, those faults will come out and they'll be exposed, and everyone will see them as something that is wrong. And this is a very different example, but I remember in rugby, for example, you know the, um, you know the French they they beat the All Blacks in a quarter final of the World Cup, and they, they they found out that the French went out drinking during the week. And then when they won, everyone said, "Wow, that's so French!" You know, they really got together and really felt like they were doing, you know, capturing that French spirit and joie de vivre. And you know, they said, "We're going to go out and beat the All Blacks together." But yet, if they lost that game, everyone would say, we can't believe the, or the French were out drinking that week. Okay, So whatever we're looking at with O'Brien now, we're seeing as a fault. We're seeing as something wrong with him. You know, Bellamy has a temper. Well, he's just got very high standards. You know, he knows what he's doing. Um, with O'Brien, it's, well, he's, he's got a horrible temper. He, you know, he's completely lost the group. If, if you are doing well... The mood is good. People feel like they're moving forward. They're taking teams apart, and those problems that you might have with somebody just don't come to the fore in the same sort of way. I've been in teams where you've got a coach that everyone kind of like. Well, he kind of knows what he's doing, but you know, we'll just keep running the team and we'll do pretty well, and the team wins despite. I've been in teams where the team is coached by some of the best people in the world, and it's not winning. And they get, and the coaches are getting frustrated. Everyone's getting frustrated with each other, and it's, and it causes huge levels of tension. I've been in teams where players, I've been in teams where you're winning everything, but players are not getting on. You know, like like at at Man United, uh, uh, Teddy Sheringham and Andy Cole didn't speak for four years, but they happened to win everything during that time. They just had a falling out for a different set of reasons. So I think with the the, the challenge is is. If people are saying he's got to go, the reason that I say, okay, well, 90% of coaches' firings are, you know, uh, ill-advised, the way I would describe it is the team wasn't underperforming comparative to their numbers because 90% of the time teams perform basically where they are. So the Knights' numbers are catastrophically bad, therefore they are not winning games. and and Guys like Bellamy can't get over that. Guys like Bennett can't get over that. When Bennett's numbers got to 500 in Brisbane, they fired him. When they got bad in Newcastle, they fired him. Um, so it's this is not a case where the team is underperforming. They're just they're just numbers are bad. Now, why are the numbers bad? That's another question. So mm. who's running? Who? How is the team being put together? What are the things that are causing that? Is that people there now? Or is this a set of ramifications to the decisions that have been made in the club for the last 20 years? Who is responsible for a scenario where the team keeps turning over? So that would that would be my answer to the question is, do you feel as though somebody could do better with this list? Well, statistically, maybe you could get somebody who could be more consistent with the list, but we don't see that anybody could get more out of the team that is actually playing on the day because we've never seen anybody, we've never seen anybody in the history of professional sport that's taken an uncohesive team and won a high cohesion comp. Um, 
because in the end, these limitations will overcome you. I hope I've, I don't know if I've answered that properly or not, but hopefully it gives. I a think bit you have. I think you've answered it. The and I'm oh, sorry, Brett. I'll, I'll let you. I'll let this. I'll make this my last question. You know, for now. Um, but I think where my mind sort of goes to that is because you're right. Like, who's responsible for the numbers? Who's responsible for the team the way it is? I just, I just can't remove myself from the idea that for all the co, you know, players sometimes just don't respond to coaching. Like sometimes coaching can overcomplicate. I guess what I'm trying to say is you can have a team that's been playing together with each other for 10 years and they know each other inside out, But because I've seen it in amateur sport. But a new coach will come in and say, well, we're going to do things differently. And yeah, the players so just won't so respond to we, that. So, so, so we talk about that as system change. So let's say if you look at Seabold when he went to Brisbane, he completely changed the way they defended. And he said, I just, I really like this way of defending. It works. But the problem is, is that, that might have worked at Souths, but that wasn't necessarily going to work at Brisbane where the guys have been defending another way. So you've now got everyone adjusting to a system over a period of time. But generally that might take 10 weeks, 14 weeks. We we found Brisbane basically returned back to that um, over over about after about 12 weeks that they were they returned back to where they should be. Um, because they basically had to learn that form of adjustment. Now, if you keep chopping and changing or keep bringing in different assistants who keep changing it, that's a different scenario. Um, and Or if you keep changing the team, for example, and, you know, we want to see progression in the team, you want to see it build as a team, that hasn't happened. But what's causing that, we don't know the answer to, and I don't, I'm not in that room, you're not in that room. We don't know what the pressures are um, and, and, and where the political collateral lies for those types of decisions being made. I mean, you know, you talk about French rugby. French rugby owners will come down at halftime and tell the coach who's coming on in the second half. Right? You don't want that. Um, but, you know, that's a tinkler top scenario. Yeah. But anyway, um, yeah, so um, it's, this, is a, this is a case of um, – and, and I, think, I think one of the challenges that I mentioned earlier is you make promises when you, go, when you take a job as a coach because boards want to hear certain things. Yeah. You know, I mean, they sacked Nathan Brown – Brownie, Brownie um, got good outcomes given what he had, but the problem was it was just a continuous rebuild, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it, they probably did two or three rebuilds over that period of time, Yeah. Um, and that will just kill you in the end. So that was then what Adam took on. And and I think that, that you know, there's, there's been so many different incarnations to this theoretical rebuild over the last couple of years. I mean, there was a whole period of taking Roosters players together, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, was the entire give a strategy shit about Roosters it. guys. What's that, sorry? That, that was the entire strategy was Roosters guys that had played together should make us better. That, that was the strategy. Yeah, and the problem is that's only singular relationships. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it does work to some extent, but it only works probably in attack in marginal areas. But it, and, and, and it made us probably more consistently competitive, but it didn't make us, you know, any any better a team in terms of getting up the ladder. Yeah, well, you, you, you just – it's not a sustainable way of doing it. It's a short-term yeah. fix. Yeah. Um, <coughs> and because I was looking through the Wins team tonight, and they've taken a lot of Roosters players and brought them up. That's a great way to start a club. 
that's a good short-term fix. But what you want in the long term is girls from the Hunter area, you know, brought into the team, and then you top it up now and again with people from Sydney. But yeah. that's the nature of that competition at the moment. Yeah, um, but, the, the, and, but the girls, like, there's a clear strategy there. You know, we've got... In terms of women's development, we're ahead of the pack. We're the Penrith in the women's development. You know, there's so many guys, girls from the Hunter that play in the in the best team in the comp, the Roosters. Um, but then they've done that. They've they've developed all those girls through Tasha Gale Cup, and then they've just filled it out with you know with top tier talent and young yep. top tier talent. None of the guys girls that are recruited are old. They're all early twenties. Yeah, um, and it's what you do next. That's the thing is you, you yeah yeah you go from there. You have a senior group together. You bring kids, and it's sort of in a way, it's like that Melbourne Storm early years. Yeah, yeah, and then and that's it's actually a friend of mine said the exact same thing. They they seem to have, have done that side very similar to how the Storm were built. You know, they had all these system youngsters, and then they yeah. just bought some top talent to, to filter it out and develop, you know, cultures and those sort of weird words, you know, that in, in sport. <laughs> but yeah, it's sort of and it's it's worked so far. But we'll see how it goes over the next few years. You are listening to the Bay 53 podcast. But, but there's a context here, I suppose, too, is that the women's league itself is young. Yeah, yeah. And so because it's, it's young, yeah. it doesn't have a lot the, of cohesion. So yeah, the, the team's changed. The team's changed 70% every year so far. Yeah. Exactly. And then forward the team's It won't be that way in four to five years. It'll be much more of a developed comp, and it'll get, yeah. it'll get, harder, to, it'll get harder to win. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Boys, before we do get on to the NRLW um, sort of uh, team, or at least the result, and because um, I, I do want to, I do want to ask just one more question, at least in in, in sure. respect of Adam O'Brien. What does I guess? Can you answer that? What does Adam O'Brien do next? I mean, put yourself in his shoes if you can. Is he coaching to save his career? Is he coaching to save this team? What does he do next to make, to get the best out of this team or to get the best for the Newcastle Knights, you know, in, in this off-season? What, what, what is, yeah, I sort of, yeah, because. Very uh, dangerous term, coaching for your career, but it's very necessary. So. Sorry, and you want to ask any more of that question, or should I keep? Should I no, start? no, that please go, go, go. So, 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 if you say to a, if you say to a coach, you are coaching for your career. You're now thinking along the lines of, I've got to be able to defend this going forward. You know, where am I going to be able to go? If you look at say where Tim Sheens went after 2010, you know, Wests, he went into the wilderness, just bounced around Super League clubs, you know, that were equally as badly set up. And then just and then and then went nowhere, and then somehow he's ended up back at West, which has been a great great outcome. But it can be really destructive losing a job, and then and then having a bad taste about you, so to speak. Now, what tends to happen is the the you can see it at the moment is everyone's trying to grab the magic of Penrith uh, by grabbing the assistance at Penrith, or you take the assistance from Melbourne, or you take the assistance from the Roosters, and think that those guys will bring that magic to the table. But if you don't give it enough time, you can't turn around the club you go to. It happens in the AFL all the time. <coughs> now, um, the other part is they'll probably say, well, I want to bring I want to bring the Roosters or I want to bring the, the Melbourne Storm to the new club, but you're not actually copying the right stuff. You just If you're just copying the way they do things, that's not going to work. 
You actually have to copy the way in which they're built. And then you do that. You know, there's no point, there's no point the knights playing the storm way. They need to play the knight's way. And I don't know what the knight's way is. I don't know if the knights know what the knight's way is. Um, and it hasn't really, you know, I, it hasn't really, knights haven't really had a style since probably the mid 2000s. Would you say that's fair enough? Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah. Our, well, no, our style was uh, having a mortal at halfback. Like, jokes aside, and when we're still recovering from his retirement, because we've never, we, we've been, you've said it before, it's like the Knights keep trying to replicate that that team. Well, that, that's never going to happen again. But no. that, that unfortunately was what but the was Knights can be better than they were then. Yes, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. But I'm not sure that they know that. Yeah. And so they keep trying to find him and he's not there, right? He doesn't exist. So, but you can, you can build it in the collective. I think we've mentioned that previously. So yeah. if we say, okay, Adam's coaching for his career, that's, that's not a good scenario. He shouldn't be coaching for his career. He shouldn't have been coaching for his career. He should have been right. Let's, 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 let's pretend for a second. I'm a billionaire. <laughs> and I come to the Knights and I buy the Knights and I say, okay, guys, I want, I've got one rule for you. I want 90% of the team to be, to be born within 300 km or 150 kilometers of the stadium. So the Barcelona model, I'm not saying that's going to work, but let's just set that limitation. Uh, you're now getting into north of Hornsby. Let's say 100 kilometers of the stadium. <laughs> 100 kilometers of the stadium and then, and then up, 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 up a hunter. I don't care if you lose 50 in a row, but and you can't you can't um, you can't bring in more than one player per year at the age of 25. Now these seem like really stupid rules. There's a team in the UK um, EPL called Brentford, and they have a rule which is they won't make a judgment call on a player until they get to 38 games. Yeah. Because they know they need enough time to figure out. Now 38 games actually one season, but they 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 know they need to give enough time to figure out if this guy can play. And it just slows everything down. Now, if I own the team and I have that level of control, it doesn't matter what the fans think. It doesn't matter what occurs. But generally what will happen in that scenario is the team will gradually improve. It'll drop away for a bit. Then it'll reload and it'll go again. And then you have, you know, you hopefully have good years is grand finals, bad years is semifinals, and you just stick around that, that level. But that's because you've only got one person answering that to, you know, to, to create that high level of control. So, you know, the Knights had that opportunity in a way with Nathan Tinkler, but his philosophy wasn't that he wanted to empire build today with Wayne to win tomorrow, not thinking, okay, let's do this slowly and let's do it appropriately. Mm. Now, that that is not necessarily what every club wants. Some, some you've got comp lots of competing interests You've got people who will want to be on the board so they can just tell their mates they're on the board. You've got people who, and I'm not, I don't know anyone on the board. I'm not casting expressions on an individual. I'm no, just no, no, I know what you're saying. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Sport. You've got people who, who are coaching to just do two more years, go to Super League and done. You've got players coming and going. So you've got to have something for the Knights to fall behind. You've got to have some kind of theme. It might be local. The, the Penrith, it is, we develop from within. They are not going to deviate from that because you have to have something else other than winning. If it's winning, you're in deep trouble because, you know, I could explain it to you mathematically, but the easiest way to describe it is you could have three years and win each year 
you actually win less games than the last. You could go 12, 11, 10, but you could be making incredible progress towards long-term sustainable success. But publicly, it's not seen that way. So you have to have somebody that's willing to hold the line to say, I don't care that you're unhappy. This is the right way to do it. I think Penrith literally did. Penrith literally did that in the Gus Gould years. Yeah, you know, they they just middled out. You know, they were they were seventh and ninth and tenth and sixth, and that you know, we thought, oh, they're going nowhere. But you're right; they're actually developing the long term success. And 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 uh, Brendan Gale did it at Richmond. So Richmond did it for 34 years. This cycling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 82 to 2015, the year they won the grand final, they still tried to overthrow the board because they just can't help themselves. (laughs) <laughs> but they had a guy. They had a guy, Brendan Gale, come in and say, "This has got to stop," and I'm in charge now, and we're going to win three titles by 2020. And they did it. They yeah. went about it, and they did it. And that's a harder comp to do it in than than um, than the NRL. So they, hey. they it took some stability to pull it off. Ben, just before actually, look, that's a beautiful segue at least into something uh, for my man Bredo here. Before we do get to the NRLW, can we, and uh, very quickly, can I get your thoughts on Alastair Clarkson going to the North Melbourne Kangaroos? How do you, are you, do you see that as a, as so a smart my, move? Um, by... So, so I, so my, uh, my son's, um, uh, my son's primary school, um, uh, headmaster is a massive North Melbourne fan. What a good fella. What a good bloke. Yeah, and I said to my son, I said, I want you to go say this to Mr. Pelosi today. My son's name's Elroy. I said, Elroy, tell Mr. Pelosi, just because they've signed a good coach doesn't mean they fix the problem, right? And and if you look at if you look at um, Clarkson's career, he is the the um, you know the uh, the uh, Melbourne Storm coach, God, sorry, because I've, I've switched codes of my heads out of the different Craig Bellamy. He's Bellamy, right? So when I looked at Clarkson, I think he's, let's, let's say he's coached 400 games. He's won 330. Um, I think he should have won 328. So he won two more games than he should have. So it was his, it was the construction of the team. It was the falling in behind him. If you look at Dimmer at Richmond, you know, like first three years, they're just getting annihilated. They kept saying, it's time to sack the coach, time to sack the coach. But they didn't. They didn't do what Richmond normally does or with Hawthorne. They didn't do what Hawthorne sometimes does and get rid of him. And so they just had some patience and they just needed another year. And so, but what tends to happen in the AFL, the really, really senior coaches when they change clubs, if they're given enough time, um, and they can and they can get that group to get going, then they will be successful. The problem is oftentimes is that when they go and take like a young assistant from Hawthorne or another club, they don't give them enough time because they're like, oh well, he hasn't won, therefore he can't coach. And it's sort of like with with um, you know with Wayne at Newcastle, despite all the problems, he still made the semi-finals. He still put together a team when given enough time to win. But because he was Wayne, no one's going to question it. No one's going to question whether he's a messiah or not. And so often these senior guys are given much more time in order to be successful. Um, and many, many, you know, one of the biggest challenges I see with the Knights is, is it's two years of undoing the previous guy's work because, you know, you come into the house, you're like, I do not like this paintwork. I've got to strip everything back and start again. Well, two seasons mm-hmm. go by, and then you go and put it back, back together again, and then, um, you know, okay, well, another two seasons gone by, you've got the team you wanted, 
okay, but now you've lost, so well, you're going to be fired, and then the next guy comes in and does the same thing. It's been it's been that way quite a bit. So so Clarkson, you know, with you know Mel, um, North Melbourne decided just fired the CEO yesterday. So unless they get behind Clarkson and give him some time, and unless they have stability, then he will be um, the, uh, like Mick Malthouse at Carlton. He'll just be another statistic of a coach who used to be successful, who went somewhere else and couldn't fix the problem. See, my, my hope is well, that North, North Melbourne's success was built on stability. You know, we we never fired coaches. We, we never sacked players. You know, we, we had the same team and the same coaching staff for decades. And, and, and you also, that's changed. Also, that group came through together under nine teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dennis Pagan. Back then with the crazy curly hair. My apologies. Um, God, he's now judged codes. Yeah. Dennis Pagan. Uh, yeah, Dennis Pagan. I think it was. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was going to say. I thought that was a bit rough on Mick Malthouse. He won a premiership at the Pies. <laughs> yeah, did Collingwood. He did, but Carlton. Uh, he was. It wasn't good. Yeah. Um, no, so he went West Coast. Good. Amazing Collingwood title. Uh, Carlton, yeah, uh, yeah. better, better just you head off now. So, um, no, no, that's fair. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's it. Sorry. All I was going to say was because this is a this is a very interesting, and I probably should have given you the background. Uh, Bredo and I, we actually moonlight in the uh, AFL when we're trying to um, dull the pain that is the Newcastle Knights. So I'm actually a mad Hawthorne Hawks fan, and um, Bredo is a North Melbourne Kangaroos fan. So we usually, whenever we need a good distraction, we um, we have a chat about that. Is ben, can we North Melbourne and Knights at the same time? It's like suicide. Right, <laughs> the late nineties were awesome, mate. The late nineties. Oh, the late nineties were. You had you had uh, Joey Johns and Wayne, Wayne Carey. Andrew Johns, mate. Wayne Carey and Andrew Johns. It was my life when I was in my early twenties. Oh, you've been paying, mate. You've been they've, you've been paying for it ever since. Um, Ben, can we can we talk? We we've obviously had you on for, and we could go forever. So can we can we talk a little bit of NRLW with you? Are you are you keen to throw some ideas around about the women's game, mate? The the um, NRLW Knights, they're three from three to start the season 2022, and that's a just a complete 180 turn <laughs> from this year where they couldn't win a game. Three from three, uh, they got over the Eels with a last-minute try uh, and a Kira, Dibbs con- Kira Dibb conversion, 18 to 16. We're in the semis, two rounds to go, and um, yeah, everything's coming up Newcastle when it comes to the uh, women's team. So I think that that I find women's sport really, really interesting, and and particularly with the the expansion of the leagues, um, and the, and the way in which it's under being undergone across, you know, the 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 AFLW, the NRLW, or sorry, women's NRL. I, I apologise if I get the terms wrong. Um, That's fine. And also, also it's happened um, within netball as well. There's been a lot of change. So if you, when when we first started off looking at the AFLW, when it first started, the the two teams who were dominant early were Brisbane and Adelaide, and their teams were based upon their state-based teams because a lot of women's sport is state-based. So in other words, the Broncos were basically the Queensland team. You know when they first in in um, in, in an RLW, so they already had some pre-existing cohesion they could draw upon, which sort of probably drew out that dominance for that Queensland team early. Um, and in and like I said in AFLW it was Brisbane and Adelaide who did very very well. Now 
the, what you've also now got is you then had um, the New Zealand team and you had, I'm going to get this right, Roosters and Dragons, which would have been the New South Wales team split in half, more or less. Mm-hmm. Yep. 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 So then obviously that gives the Brisbane team a really big advantage because you don't have the cohesion anywhere else. Um, and it wasn't until then you get the Gold Coast coming along with that tends to kind of split it off. But the rate of growth in the league is just extraordinary. And a good way to describe this is a couple of years ago, the women's netball comp went from five teams to eight in one year when they, what they did is they got rid of the New Zealand, they had an Australian New Zealand um, competition, sort of like super rugby. And they had five New Zealand, five Australian, and they decided, oh, we don't want to be a part of that anymore. So we're going to go now to eight Australian teams. That's like adding, that's like adding uh, six or seven NRL teams in one year as expansion teams. Mm. Imagine the chaos that would create. Now, with the NRLW, what you're doing is you're basically expanding at the same rate because you've got the pool of players and then you're adding new teams, which will strip out from the other teams at the same time. And you found the AFLW has struggled with that quite a bit because they just added another four teams this year at the same time off a playing pool that's not – it's not – it's not – vacuous but it's oftentimes what the expansion clubs do to the pre-existing teams so newcastle i imagine probably had a biggest effect on the roosters would that be fair to say yep yep stripping that out yeah that means oh can i sorry can i i mean we did take the broncos two of their three best players as well and the broncos are struggling this season yep and so okay so 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 it had an impact on two teams then um but my point is that when you add more teams to a small base, you basically strip out what's already there. And uh, yeah, we, we had an interesting interesting conversation once with a team, an expansion team that was in a, a professional league. <coughs> Excuse me. And they wanted to win in the first year. And we said, well, if we're going to go about this, the best thing you can do is let's take the best three teams and let's make them weaker because that's your best chance of catching them. So let's strip out their best combinations that will do the most damage to those clubs. We didn't actually do it because we didn't really like it, but that was the <laughs> Is you want to, you know, like if you wanted to, the best, you know, the best chance of Dolphins, you know, if they said they have to win in two years, what I'd be doing is aiming directly at Cleary or Luai, not because of what it does, but because of what it does to Penrith. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because it's crazy trying to get the view to play that well, they won't. But you want to try to drag out what yeah. you can the other team. So, with the women's comp, the only thing I'd just be is a little bit cautious on the speed of acceleration of the competition. So, so next year, next year there's four new teams: um, Tigers, Sharks, Raiders, and uh, the oh, the Gold Stars, which is uh, North Queensland. So that then creates you know essentially three new New South Wales teams and another Queensland team. Do you think that? Weakens the Sydney teams again, and then gives the Broncos a leg up. Well, I think I think that that where like like Gold Stars, you've got a much better chance of sourcing players locally up there. Yeah, locally. which is a, which is I think we've got four of them, which will probably go home. Yeah. So if you take you know, I mean that's that's the challenge is if you if you take players from other teams, they're probably only going to go back at some point. So yeah. That's why you want to get to a sustainable model, but. What I'd say with the with the, that that North Queensland is up there, um, you can drag from from the local area, 
Um, I mean, I, what, what I find really interesting at the moment with women's sport is, for example, a lot of the Australian women's team that won the Rio Olympics were touch football players. So they yeah. took those girls together, took them across to win in Rio, and now a lot of those girls have now come across to the NRLW. Yeah. And so the relationship between women's rugby union, women's rugby league is nowhere near as adversarial as it is on the men's basis. Yeah, well, Jesse, Jesse Southall, you know, just won the gold medal is now playing for us a couple of months later. Yeah. So, so, but, but, you know, and, and also, for example, you've got, because this is a kind of a new scenario, you've got really, um, it's able to get a lot of skill and a lot of time. Like there's a, there is a women's seven circuit. Um, yeah. Continuously all the time, which would, which for a young girl would be a great way to learn how to play rugby league, rugby union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to skill up. I mean, you might even say to a young girl, go do that for three or four years, then come back, um, and then then come and play for for the Broncos or in NRLW, because they're only getting what five games a year. Whereas yes. women's seven, you're looking at thirty games a year, forty games a year, even though they're shorter, obviously. But full time contracts. So there's this kind of there's this travelling circus at the moment of girls kind of switching between codes and getting opportunities in different places, which is which is absolutely brilliant for them. But I think what we really want to work towards is I don't necessarily think that 16 is, is the best number because what you want is you want it to be one stable, two sustainable. I'd, I'd rather have eight very, very well-run NRLW clubs <coughs> who are highly competitive against each other. And the more clubs you have, the more trading you have. Um, and and have them really really well run and a well run comp than than sixteen of which only maybe two or three are very very dominant and everyone else is kind of just on the on the the edge of it. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but but I'd just be very very cautious about wanting to necessarily match to sixteen as the AFL has done. Yeah, and, and I and I think and I think the the NRL have been, I think four teams next year is a huge risk. And I think for the next two or three years, that's going to make the comp quite a lot weaker than it is at the moment. But I actually think that they've decided that 10 teams is their number and they'll keep 10 teams for the foreseeable future, which is obviously, as you're saying, is, is the smart approach. Yeah, so I, I think the other good thing about a 10-team comp as well is that because you get nine, you'll essentially get nine home and away rounds. But that gives you the opportunity for a top five, maybe even a top six. So you might be looking at a two or three week finals as opposed to what we've got at the moment, which is just semis and a grand final. So I, I think 10 is a good number for expansion because you're looking at a 15 week comp where it's at the moment, we're sort of looking at six or seven weeks. And I think I think that one of the things that will come off the back of this is it will only improve the standard of women's state of origin, which is already pretty yeah. done. Yeah, it would really ramp up, um, you know, in terms of the rivalry and in terms of the standard of the game. That you'd you'd hope you could, you know, like I know in um, English rugby, for example. So the women's women's English team can pull thirty thousand, no problems, to some of their games. Um, I'd really like to see a really well attended women's NRL. Um, uh, sorry, women's state of origin. Yeah, well, they're, they're, talk, they're talking there's a good chance Newcastle's going to host that in the next couple of years. And I really do think that with the sort of the popularity of the game in this town, we could quite easily get twenty five to 30,000 for that in two years' time. Yeah, yeah. And and um, it's it, 
the good part about it is if you run those those Queensland teams really really well, it can it can function um, so that it's quite even. You know, what, what, the reason state of origin exists, isn't it, because of the unevenness yeah. yes. that come between the two competitions. Yeah. Uh, thanks to uh, 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 poker machines to a certain extent. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Bretto, um, Bre- sorry. Bretto, you were at the game yesterday. I, I, I was sort of caught up um, um, down at Toronto, so I, I only made it for the end. But um, you, because you had a really good view of the game yesterday, you sort of saw the back and forth. The conditions weren't the best for um, for rugby league um all afternoon but um it was it was a solid win by the women's team like they were up against it it was never going to be easy and they they did enough to sort of get the job done in the end yeah the um the conditions were were, were treacherous they the wind was the wind was howling so any long pass you know was sort of was hard to was hard to hit the target but i was i was actually really impressed with the kicking games of both teams the, the weakness of women's rugby league has been both goal kicking and fifth tackle kicking just they didn't have the sort of leg strength and the technique to drive but they're driving the ball you know quite well into the wind and both teams played actually really good field position running into the wind so that that was a re- really impressive i think Parramatta impressed me for a team that hadn't won a game they played a really good game but um yeah the girls um the stars really of the team knuckled down at the right time and got us home thankfully I'd be interested to know if there's any rules that might work better for women's rugby league that would be a good adjustment. Um, for example, you know, it, do, do, is 40-20 something that happens particularly often? Would oh, I'm just, just about to say that. It's 40-30. Yeah. 40-30, uh, okay. Yeah, and then, and, then um, and I'm only asking this simply for, like, yeah. from a knowledge perspective, but, for example, would eight tackle sets – be more helpful, less helpful. Is there is there anything that in the game might would be helpful to change in the short term to kind of make it a not a better spectacle because that's the wrong term, but that that um, that may help in the to make the most out of the skill sets you have. I mean, one statistic I found really interesting was the Wallabies in the mid nineties. Sorry, uh, late 90s, they did a test on who could pass left to right 10 metres and only one player could do it. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon it wasn't me. Um, I reckon that, that given the touch background of a lot of these girls, they're better passers than most of the men. Yeah, I actually, I, and I've been a bit of a, my, I don't know now, it's probably too late, but initially when when they sort of uh, started the NRLW, I was an advocate of playing what they play in mod rugby league, which is 11 players. Because some of those girls were sevens players, and they played the game with expansive passing, but they sort of the the structure of a thirteen aside game didn't suit that. I actually thought it would have a better spectacle early if they played eleven aside. Okay, yeah, and theoretically you could build out. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ben, no, have no, you I, I, much of? Sorry. No, you go. No, I just I was just going to say because um, I actually used to go out with a girl who played in the Australian women's rugby union team, and the 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 thing that hit me the most that I did not really was not aware of was um, the impact that the impact that lifting had on men's sport in the nineties. That's really now come on in women's sport in the last ten years. So yeah. if you looked at if you looked at you had some girls who lifted. 20 years ago, but not most of them would. Now, the the physiques and the and the core strength that, yeah. that 
the girls have built up is just making a phenomenal difference. Yeah, and which I think is born out, and as I said, the kicking game yesterday, I was impressed with how good the girls could drive the ball into the wind. And I think that's that core strength and, you know, that that lifting that's certainly a part of that. Can I ask you a, a random question, Ben? The All Blacks. Is is the All Blacks being unbeatable? Is that over? So they've been they've been dropping away since 08, but they managed to win two World Cups in the same period of time. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so you know, this is this has actually been coming for quite a while. And I, I'm gonna describe this to you as best I can. One of the biggest drivers of success internationally has been having good domestic setups. And in Europe, it just used to be a complete debacle. Of, you know, just different clubs, put players everywhere, and then you basically get picked to play for your country, and then you'd be annihilated by South Africa, Australia, and New Zealand. The Celtic, the Celtic League has three teams, uh, so two teams from Scotland, four from Ireland, and four from Scotland, so four from Wales. And what that meant is that basically all those players are playing together all the time and then they go into the national team. So Ireland has gone from being number eight in the world to number one in the world over the past 20 years. <coughs> and almost all of them are playing for a, a team called Leinster. Now, if you talk about TWI, Leinster is the number one TWI rugby team league or union in the world. Um, you wouldn't have maybe heard of them, but they've... Yeah, you know, you quite often see them in the Heineken Cup games on TV. Yeah, yeah they've very, very, been very, very successful. They yeah. took over from the Crusaders and Melbourne Storm as the number one TWI team in the world last year. Um, and Ireland have now beaten the All Blacks now four of the last five times. Now, the All Blacks have weakened. Australia has weakened by by our numbers. I'm not talking about individuals. Um, off the back, a number of different things have taken place. But the, the All Blacks... Um, basically used to beat, you know, they used to beat Wales by 60 or 70. Those days are now over. But it's also off the back of everyone else getting their shit together, so to speak. And so in right now in the, in the world of rugby, you've got about eight teams who can all beat each other at any one time, including the Northern Hemisphere. But you, there used to be this aura around teams. There's in a, similar to the aura around the Queensland State of Origin team. But it's it's... None of that stuff's real. Like it's just a, it's just something that we put upon them. So you, you, you obviously played the All Blacks. Like, do, do you feel it on the field? You look at them going, look at these Goliaths. These are the All Blacks. Like, what am I doing here? I was very lucky in that I think I played the All Blacks seven times and won five. Yeah, right. So when you're, that, so that was late nineties, early two thousands. When, when, um, the Brumbies era. Yeah. So, so when, when. When you're not scared of the All Blacks, the haka is kind of funny. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, so back in your day, they were still doing the traditional haka. There wasn't the new stuff they do now. No, 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 it's the new stuff, but it doesn't. Doing the new stuff, yep. It's 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 for them. It's not for us. Yeah, yeah. Who so was the 1999 World, World Cup winning coach for the Wallabies? Who was the 99 World? Rod McQueen. Yeah, Rod McQueen. Yeah. yeah, because wasn't he the one who introduced the idea that uh, leave your tracksuit on when they're doing the haka? Make it, yeah, make it, exactly. don't make, don't. Diffuses, diffuses a scenario. But, but realistically, yeah. realistically, like if you know, if you, if you know you've got a team's measure, that stuff doesn't matter, right? Yeah, okay. I've seen, I've seen an Italian team literally soil themselves in front of the Haka because they yeah. pay too much kudos to them. 
you know, they, they're in these black magical jerseys. You know, there's books like Legacy. I don't know if you've heard of Legacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it kind of mythologizes this team. They are just a bunch of humans just like anybody else. And when their numbers are bad, they get beaten. And their numbers have gotten worse. And the numbers have been dropping now for quite a bit. And so they lose games when they lose games. So for me, um, you know, I, I'm not casting any aspersions over, over the era that I was a part of. At, at during our area, we were better set up for a whole number of reasons than the All Blacks. Therefore, we beat them. But then there was a period of time when everyone thought they were unbeatable, and they made it so. You know, and at some point, yeah. you well, this is yeah, because just- you remember those games in in that next period when we quite often would lead with you know five to go, and we never thought we'd win because we just knew every time they would find a way to beat us, and they did. Yeah, there's, there's something about this, and, and I've seen it quite a bit lately. It's very similar to kind of Man United, and I wonder if it's about that notion of under fatigue, they can hold the pattern much better. Whereas yeah. where we are under fatigue, you tend to start to really falter. Yeah. And, um, and so the All Blacks, for that period of time, had this unbelievable ability to score in the last minute and win, and uh, and Man United were the same. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I there's just something about the way certain teams are built that just means they seem to be very capable of doing it. Yeah. Yep. So do we, yeah, let's keep going. Do we have any other questions? No, no, no. I, I, I look, I, I just, um, um, I guess, I guess for the, for Knights fans, it's really more our excitement about the NRLW girls. I mean, we're in the finals and, but it's not even just that we're, we're in the finals is that the, they're winning games, and certainly the way they played in the first game, they they don't look like they're just going to make up the numbers. What I did want to ask you though was, you've got the Knights essentially now have two games where they don't matter because the way the women's comp is at the moment, you're not playing for home field advantage. You know, you're not playing for that top two spot to get a second bite of the cherry. Like it's it's two semifinals, and then the winners go into the grand finals. What do the NRLW Knights? get out of the last two games of the season we're playing the roosters next weekend i mean my my opinion is is that you don't go out to try you 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 want to beat the roosters when it matters next weekend it doesn't really matter do you still play your best team next week to make sure that all of the combinations are working or are you trying to keep your players (laughs) healthy this is an opportunity to give other players a a, a run well if you're the coach how are you approaching the last two rounds of the season Okay, so let's say there are certain combinations that if you put them on now, you would be dysfunctional. And not dysfunctional perspective of the skill of the players, but just the knowledge and understanding between the players. And if they were dysfunctional, you want to be prepared as you can for that scenario. So, okay, if we lose a centre, who goes into that spot? Have they played there? Have they played with those girls? Have they played on edge together? If they haven't, let's try to get them some time in the bank so that if we're in a final and that girl has to come on to that position, we can do it. That's one way of thinking about it is what's the next team look like? What you don't want to do is you don't want to swap the whole team out for the B team because the B team is not going to be playing the final. What might happen in a final, though, is one or two girls getting injured and some of the Bs having to come on. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you want to prepare yep. for that scenario, right? So, what so- is your emergency situation for each position? So we have a specialist half, Caitlin Moore, and who plays on our bench. So you recommend her getting some time at halfback in the next two weeks just in case she's needed? Well, the next question you need to ask is, right now, is our best capable of beating the best 
at home because it'll probably be a Sydney-based final, I take it? It'll be on grand final yeah. day and a real grand final day. Okay, so, so are they are they capable right now of beating the Roosters in Sydney? Because you've got to be... Probably not. Okay. So, therefore, you're going to have to take a risk. And that risk is how do we get ourselves in those two to three games closer to the Roosters? So, so the risk you're now taking is, okay, we've got to build up some more understanding within the weakest parts of our team that we don't quite have right now. We'll work on combinations to get ourselves strong enough to beat them in Sydney on that day. So now we're not going to worry about that that other strategy of getting people in because it's really a case of either losing by 10 or losing by 30. It doesn't really matter. So it's like you – so we've, we've had clubs – that we worked with, in, there was a club in the UK, we basically had 10 games to stop them from being relegated. So we're like, okay, well, this is a really high risk strategy. We're going to focus on six first six games to get you in a position to beat, to win two of the last three. Okay, how do we do that? How do we build the team up enough? And we just had to focus on the starting team because there wasn't enough time. So if the Knights are not good enough today to beat the Roosters today or tomorrow, then I would say let's take a high-risk strategy of hoping we don't get any injuries, hoping we don't have to make too many bench changes and try to put ourselves in a position where we could beat them if we if we, if we we build enough understanding over the next two games. Does that make sense? You've kind of got a strategy yeah. about what you need to do in order to put yourself in that position because otherwise it's just it's too risky. Now, we're talking about a two-week scenario. Other teams, you might say – Okay, Newcastle Knights men's team. How do we build a club that is capable of beating Penrith in Sydney with two injuries? That's a lot, much longer answer, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we needed to start talking about at the beginning of this episode, not at the end. (laughs) That's that's like that's that's the type of questions you need to ask yourself. Yeah, about about wanting to go about doing it. Uh, and how do we how do we go about doing that? Because yeah, that's gonna that's gonna take some time to build that answer out, and then go about doing it. Newcastle are the premiers. As as everyone in the world knows, we we need a halfback. Do you recommend we get a halfback in with NRL experience that'll probably make us you know a sort of ninth, tenth, eleventh place team, or do you think we we develop from within and try and get that half back for the next 10 years. Okay. So each, each decision you make is going to act in a set of a chain of events. So the, the first question you got to ask is what do we have in the bank now? Who's next? And then who's, who's next after that? Who's next after that? So who is, there's a chain of guys there. Who have we got in 16s? Now, if, if you've got a sense of, okay, we have a kid, but he's not ready yet. Okay, well, how do we get through to that? How do we get through to that point where that kid is ready? What does he need? Does he need somebody above him to teach him how to play? Does he need a coach? Does he need uh, other – Does he, do we need to build him into a combination with somebody else first before he steps into first grade? Um, and then the question you need to ask is what will it do and what will it say if we import someone above him? Because we talk about a lot of time you sign one, lose three. So if we bring in somebody from another club, let's say this is a bad example. Let's say you bring Ben 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 Hunt up to the Knights. How many guys will you lose if Ben Hunt comes? 
And because what will happen is Hunt will be there for three years and then he'll leave and then you're like, where do those juniors go that we had before? Which is yeah. what happened with Mitchell Pearce to us. Yeah. And so there is a there is a there is a set of collateral damage that takes place every time you import um, to the to the club, and it has some ramifications. So it's really about what what is the smoothest transition we can get. Now, if you don't have that kid, the easiest way to do it is to say, right, let's focus on let's just get let's just choose any spine we can right now if we don't have one to try to build a spine and make it stable through the year and knights have not had a stable spine oh, i don't know five to oh, oh five would that be fair yeah yeah that'd be fair yep sorry not oh five because that was hagen's year that they had all the injuries yeah um, no oh six oh six we 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 finished third we finished third in oh six it was a good year yeah so um I mean, imagine how easy it would have been coming into that spine back then. It would have been Baderis, yeah. Johns, you know. I'm, I'm Which is sure. why Jared Ballon looked so good when he came into first grade. Yes, and then didn't progress after they left, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, which I discussed with him at Fanny's, I think, when it's so four in the morning, but that's not a lot of That's going to be the title of this pod, by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so um, the, the, you know, how do you build an environment for that player to, to progress in, um, you know, and, and to come through? And so I think I think the first things first would be importation of another player is kind of the path that the club's already been down, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. 300, 400 times. I mean, no club – Titans and Knights, the last 10, 15 years, have turned over more players than any other clubs in the comp by a mile. Right, so everyone's saying new coach, new new players. Hasn't kind of that been the been the bit we've already done? Yeah, yeah. You know, like sacking this guy, sacking this guy, sacking this guy. Everybody looks bad in a badly put together team. Everyone looks like they're not trying. Um, uh, I think though, but I think the reason it's it's the most vociferous this year, Ben, is that. You know, since 2015, no, since 2016, that one-win season, we have been, in a lot of ways, funnily enough, the Knights were very, Knights fans were very lucky over the next five seasons because we saw gradual improvement each season. You know, we went from one win to, I think, five. We went from five wins to 11th. We went from, you know, 11th to two finals. We saw a gradual pro progression. And in a lot of ways... You're wrong, well, sorry. sorry, sorry, sorry. My my apologies. We saw uh, improvement on the t on the ladder. Yeah, and so, so from an outsider looking in, I wasn't being rude. I apologise. It's just a really important no, 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 no. You're right. No, you are right. And so, but I guess from an outsider looking in, we, you know, when we were told with the rebuild years, the, the three spoons in a row, we were sort of, of the as a fan, you were of the understanding. Well, this is what we were waiting for. This is the payoff. So to see that gradual. Um, uh, you know, upward trend on the ladder suddenly come. We didn't even just regress. We came. We fell off a cliff. As a fan, that it's it's so hard to accept. It's 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 just this this year has shocked me because what we've seen over the last few years was that direction that is just one hundred, just a one eighty degree about face. So so it's it's not. It just appears that way. Yeah. It, there's an inevitability to this, and um, 
I, 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 I can't explain it more because it starts to sort of touch on some of the IP of the work, but the okay. best way I can describe it is you're existing on a certain plane, okay? Let's call it Penrith plane, right? You you build the way you build Penrith the way they are. When they're the youngest team in the comp, they're still competitive. They get to mid range. They get to mid range age wise. They're winning everything. You get to you get to that group older, built that way. They they don't lose games outside of state of origin period. That's sort of what Brisbane got to in the mid nineties. Whereas we did not lose games outside of June. Um, now, if you go back down that scale again to younger, it basically stays in the same place, which is competitive winning finals. If you're on a different plane, and that plane is basically buying older players, acquiring players from other clubs. Now, if you're doing it with very young guys and you've got an inexperienced group, you're basically being annihilated coming last. Make that group a bit older, right? Make that group a bunch of 28-year-olds, 29-year-olds. You're on the edge of finals. You're making finals, but you're not capable of winning the comp. If you want to be capable of winning the comp, you basically have to get to, say, 32, 33 years old, which is sort of the Knights 13, I think would be make, make sense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you're still on that same plane of acquisition, and you're just going up and down the same plane. So what then happens is with that 28, 29-year-old group, and Penrith will never get to a 28, 29-year-old group, they'll stay young because they can just keep replenishing, is that you then basically just slide straight back down again and, and when you really start to lose that, that cohesion inside that plane, you then basically go back to three win, four win seasons. You've got to try to break away from that plane of acquisition. So, so it's basically functioning on that different level and and Penrith and the and the storm are functioning on an entirely different level from where the knights are now they're going to be years inside that where the knights actually win more games um, if if but if they stay on that level it's this kind of like wave if you can imagine like a like a, a very heavily oscillating you know those kind of heart rate monitors you know yeah. they're oscillating up and down it's just going to be this slow oscillation from good to terrible, to good, to terrible. What you want to do is build a system which goes from great to outstanding just slowly. And that's like what Ferguson did at Man U. You know, you're basically bad year. On, on, on that point, on that point, Parramatta. So they, for years, were finals, wouldn't spoon. Finals, wouldn't spoon. Now they seem to be consistently finals. And this year, looking contenders, did you predict they would be sort of this this good this year? Their numbers are absolutely spectacular this year. Yeah. But they're not yet on that plane. They're just closer to it than they used to be. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's really important for Parramatta is getting rid of short-term voting on their board. Yeah. Because they used to have two-year board tenures. I think yeah. that's probably yeah. yeah. really there for a while. Because, um, that you know, when you're going through 10 CEOs in 10 years, you can't help but be uh, <laughs> your chaos. So... I mean, um, Brad Arthur's been there for eight years, which is a miracle at Parramatta. Oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. Um, and that's a big club with lots of pressure. And, you know, the, the titles of 86 and stuff, they yeah. hang around their neck, don't they? Yeah. You know, with that pressure. So so I think that, that I understand how pernicious and difficult this has been, but there's different types of progress. 
and the Knights have been progressing, but they've been progressing inside a different uh, a different plane of, of existence. I know that sounds really weird, but I hope I'm trying to explain that there's different there's certain ways to build a club and you can oscillate up and down the experience or you can oscillate up and down the cohesion model. And you just you're just much better off doing it with a with a long-term view and putting something together that's sustainably successful. Yeah. Um, Sorry if that's depressing, but I'm not, you know. No, 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 not at all. It's it's the it's the facts of life that we need to hear. Um, I actually only have one more question for you, Ben. And this is really more as a as, as a question as a as a rugby league fan, mate. Who's your favourite rugby league player of all time? Kevin Sinfield. Really? Love him. We've yeah. named one of our algorithms after him. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Why Kevin Sinfield? I've got to hear the answer to this. When Leeds was better put to, were the best put together team in the world, they had less money and still won the World Club Championship with guys like Sinfield, Rob Barrow, Rob Barrow, um, Beds when he went over. Um, so they were the, they're like one club that really we really really respect. They were unbelievably well put together, and they were you know I think they beat Melbourne one year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which to me on a lower budget is pretty bloody impressive. And I think they beat Melbourne when Melbourne were, you know, a million miles above the salary cap. Yeah. But their numbers, their numbers cohesion-wise were incredible. And Kevin Sinfield, what was he, 400 games or whatever? Yeah. Part of that. And, uh, yeah, and also, like, my family's from Leeds. So, um, yeah, Kevin Sinfield. So so there's two players we've named things after. One is, um, this, it's called a Sinfield ratio, uh, which we've named after Kevin Sinfield. And the Pulitzer coefficient, uh, the Pulitzer <laughs> brothers, um, yeah. But yes, yeah, so Kevin Sinfield, and um, I get a lot of I get a lot of satisfaction at the moment at being able to say uh, Nelson Asafa Solomona. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think he's a good player, but I just love being able to say it with my kids. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm the same. I never call him Nas. He's always Asafa Solomona to me too. Like it rolls off the tongue nice. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, uh, let me think about this. I grew up. I grew up on you know Ray Price, you know those guys. Um, mm. I think. I think. Um, I always feel sorry for Danny Baderis. Not not Same. not in, in terms of you know sorry as in because he gets to live in Newcastle, which is awesome. Uh, but he, you know, he played as one of the great players in the game. But with with Joey, so I don't ever think he quite got the plaudits he deserved. I agree with that. And and if he'd been in any other era, he would be looked upon, you know, yeah, uh, you know, as as an immortal. But he just happened to play in, you know, a pretty good team and a pretty good group. Um, but he's also has got more humility than anybody I've ever met in professional sports. So I'm a big fan of the man. So. The- Ben, there's so much going on with that. A couple, couple of things I want to say on that because I um, was at a fan day where I got um, uh, Bedsy's signature just after um, just after Joey had retired, and I remember specifically saying to Bedsy, "I said, congratulations, Bedsy, you're the best player in the world now," um, because that's how highly I regarded him, and he just 
he, he almost wouldn't hear a word. Or you could tell he was um, he was embarrassed by it. But it's funny what you say about Bedsy's career being overshadowed because he wasn't just overshadowed by Joe. He was, it was overshadowed by Cameron Smith as well. And it, it's always funny to me because that 2006 um, Kangaroos test against New Zealand, Joey's farewell representative game, it, that game was a farewell to the representative arena for um, Ben Kennedy and Joey. But that was actually the last time Danny Badir has ever played for Australia because he passed up the tour at the end of the year in 2006. And, well, that's when Cameron Smith debuted for the Kangaroos and he, he never let go of that jersey. So it's it's actually really funny what you say about Bedsy. He's, he You are right. He had an immortal calibre career and ability um, that was sort of um, wedged between this uh, immortal halfback and the immortal in waiting Cameron Smith. And they say, you know, never meet your heroes. But Bedsy's one of those guys actually, like, more impressive. It's like Mark Richards. It's like you can't be this nicer person and as good as you were. <laughs> you know, an, an, an interesting Bedsy thing. I played against him in schoolboy football. He's playing for Francis Xavier as a 5'8". As a and yeah. we knew, like, this guy was, a, like, a Knights player. But he, I, I think he was the only player in that Xavier team, which was basically the Knights uh, SG ball team that had no attitude, no ego, no nothing. Like, you just – he was just so quiet and shy. And you don't, didn't notice him in the warm-ups. You didn't notice him in the early parts of the game. And all of a sudden, bang, 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 he's put four tries on us and just sort of shook hands and walked off and, yeah, disappeared into the distance. And I just always sort of remembered, you know, the, the, the other guys in that team, how they hooted and hollered, but, you know, Badiris never had a bar of it. Didn't somebody get contracted at St. George because they thought Joel he was – Joel Kane. Joel Kane. Yeah. I found that story amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, literally, they literally they wanted Danny Bedirus, and they even even they showed Joel Kane footage that they thought was uh, was him. It was Danny Bedirus, and he went, "That's not me." <laughs> <laughs> how come? Um, how come Betts didn't play 06 for Australia anymore? Why did he pass that up? Uh, birth of his child. He wanted to stay oh. in Australia for um, he was becoming a parent. Just rub, uh, yeah. just rub it in, you're a good bloke, eh? Just bloody <laughs> <laughs> Ben, we have been talking to you for way too long. As you know, we can always talk to you endlessly when it comes to all things rugby league and um, the Newcastle Knights. As bad as they are, you do still manage to put an enjoyable spin on it. Mate, thank you very much for your time. Um, we're definitely going to have to get a hold of you again at some point next year to do it all again. And, um, yeah... In, uh, enjoy. What do you? What have you got? You got any plans for the uh, NRL off season? I guess you've got a whole boat, range of other sports that you'll be um, throwing your talents at. So we're 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 currently um, working on football. That's our main. Nice. So, so we're building this database, and to give you a notion, um, so we went and looked at every single sport um, that we could sort of like theoretically have as clients. And we kind of have this minimum that we think a good client would be, let's say, a team that spends 10 million bucks or more per year, wage-based. And uh, and there's about 2,000 professional sporting teams that fit that model. 1,600 of those are football teams. And the other 400 is every other sport combined. So yeah. just sort of shows you, like, football is just absolutely dominant in terms of team sports around the world with with the particularly the financial end so there's 900,000 professional footballers in the world there's about 6,000 professional league players and 
about 9,000 professional union players, give or take. Obviously, they're dancing around a bit, but just the sheer scale <coughs> of trying to track all of these footballers. I mean, our nightmare was, for example, there was three Cameron Smiths playing in the late 90s. Imagine that in football, uh, all the different players, different eras. <laughs> oh, the, the amount of football stories you hear where guys got signed on huge contracts and it was a guy with the same name but the wrong guy. Yeah, yeah, that happens. Yeah, that happens quite a bit. So, actually, I knew two of those Cameron Smiths, which is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, we definitely have to bring you back on so that we can hear that story. Now, we'll have to leave you with the football as well because we are not starting a Jets uh, podcast. We do do enough damage to ourselves. Ben, thank you for joining us. Bretto, I will see you online as usual. Um, and uh, we might see if we can do a couple of wrap-up pods for the rest of the season. So, um, yeah, as always, everybody, thank you for listening and uh, enjoy the week in Rugby League. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. would like to thank you for listening right to the end you are our kind of people find other great sports podcasts in our family by subscribing and remember social media isn't a bad place you just need to follow the right people